Well, I'm sure that we have all heard the Ten Commandments before, but have we ever studied them? Have we ever looked at them in any detail? Have we looked to see how they might be relevant to us today? In a recent conversation, this question was asked, and it got me thinking, how do they help me, these commandments, to live my everyday life in the best way possible? And in Exodus chapter 20, we find in verses 1 and 2 an introduction to one of the most famous sections in the Bible. Indeed, one of the most important pieces of religious literature in the whole world, the Ten Commandments. However, do you know they're never actually called the Ten Commandments in Scripture? The Hebrew expression, which occurs three times in the Old Testament, in Exodus 34, in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 10, more literally is translated as ten words. That's why Exodus 20 is often referred to as the Decalogue, Deca being the Greek word for ten and logos meaning the word. So these are the ten words that God gave to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But before we start looking closely today at the first two, I thought it would be good for us to just notice something about the whole shebang, the whole lot. Firstly, they show us who God is. They tell us what matters to him. They set us apart from the world. We are God's people set apart to live according to his ways. Of course, we aren't always the holy people we should be, are we? But that is what he's called us to be. They don't take away our freedom, but actually they provide it. The ten words are not like prison bars, they're more like traffic laws. Imagine the chaos there would be without the normal rules of the road. We all kind of follow the same way. We don't have so many accidents, that's the theory. They weren't given so that we could earn our salvation. Some people view Christianity as God has rules and if I follow the rules, he will love me and save me. But that's not actually what happened in the story of the Exodus. The Israelites were an oppressed people and God said, I can hear your cry and I'm going to save you because I love you, not because you love me. And then when you are saved and free and forgiven, I'm going to give you a new way to live. This is what we're looking at now. Perhaps we could say, too, that the, con- the commandments are more trustworthy than our own intuition or our cultural code. We live, don't we, in a paradoxical age where some people will say, right and wrong is what you decide for yourself. And yet these same people will then tell others off for violating any number of assumed commands. But the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs 9. The way to find our moral instruction is not by listening to our guts, but by listening to God. I think we could say too, couldn't we, that the church's most important instructions have been based on them. Throughout church history, when people have asked, how do we do discipleship? Or how do we teach our children about the Bible? What do new Christians need to know about Christianity? Answers always include some kind of an emphasis or a reference to the Ten Commandments. They are critical to our understanding of the rest of the Old Testament law. If we go on to read beyond Exodus 20, there are many laws to read. But these first ten are foundational for the rest. 
They're a bit, you could say, like the constitution for Israel and the rest are the regulatory, le- mm, regulatory statutes. That's not easy to say. <laughs> they are also central to the ethics of the New Testament. Jesus quotes them and emphasises them so many times. Just in our passage from Mark's Gospel, we find him debating with the teachers of the law, asking which is most important. Jesus' reply is, love the Lord your God with basically all that you are and love your neighbour as yourself. And of course, these two have been extrapolated from the ten words. And over this period of Lent, we are going to look at all of these and see how we need to reflect on them today. In most of the churches I have regularly worshipped in, in fact, until I came here, the Ten Commandments have been written somewhere in the building, either on a stone plaque behind the communion table, maybe, or on a wooden one somewhere on the walls. And no doubt you will have seen the same somewhere too. I wonder what you thought about as you've read those words when you're bored in the sermon because the preacher's going on and on and you can just read those words. Not, of course, that you would do that, would you? But I wonder how they have challenged you, how they have encouraged you. So let's look at the Bible. If you have one, I'd invite you to open it at Exodus chapter 20, which is around about page 77. And then I want you to go backwards in the Bible to chapter 13. This is so we can get a bit of the context. So as you kind of look at the headings as we move through these pages quite quickly, you will hopefully see what the context is. So in chapter 13, the Israelites have been freed from their slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the sea and the Egyptian army have drowned. Israel's God, Israel has seen God's power at work and they've put their trust in him and in Moses. Now go across a few more pages. They're setting off into the desert. And they grumble at Moses because there's no water. They're in a desert. And then they grumble again because there's no meat and there's no food. They even contemplate that Egypt might be the better place to be. And then they grumble again because there's no water. This time, so you will find this time we're at kind of where Moses hits the rock at Moray. Moses gets cross because this continual moaning is not what he signed up for. And this moaning that Moses does will be his downfall later because he will not see the promised land. Then chapter 17, that's where I'm up to now. There's a battle with the Amalekites. They were defeated by Moses having his hands held in the air by Aaron and Hur. That's a story you will have heard before. And then Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, pays a visit and he tells him to take more care of himself, to share the workload. And then finally, chapter 19, three months after they leave Egypt, they arrive at the desert of Sinai and its mountain. And at the beginning of chapter 20, Moses is on the mountain, talking and listening to God. The God who says in verse 2, I am the one who brought you all out of Egypt, out of slavery. 
And then he begins his ten words. And the first he says is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Just notice, the creator of the universe doesn't say, because I'm your creator, obey me. That's the story of Genesis. No, he says, because I saved you, the story of Exodus. God is restating his relationship with his people, not the one of creator, although that is true and could well demand worship and obedience just for that fact in itself. No, he's saying, notice that no other God, with a small g, no other God has added anything to your existence. It's only distracted you from following me, the one true God. And we've all been distracted, haven't we? More on that in a minute. Paul writes in Romans 1 that we have chosen to suppress our knowledge of our creator and chase after other gods. It seems that our natural sinful bent is to run from our creator that we should know and trust, but choose not to do. God demonstrates his power and his majesty, not in his role as creator then in this way, but perhaps in a more intimate way, as our saviour, the one saving his people from oppression and slavery. It could be said that once the relationship between God and his people is settled, as in verse 2, it's rather superfluous to then go on and command, do not have any other gods besides me. Clearly, he's a powerful, gracious and good God, so who would want to have another one? Well, the Israelites, for starters, as history tells us, but hot on their heels, it would seem, are the rest of us. Can you deny that you have run after any other gods? Security, money, power, success. Have you really loved the Lord your, your God with all your heart, soul and mind as Jesus reframes this? No, neither have I. But fortunately for us, And thank God, because of it, Jesus has. And his perfect obedience counts for us too. More than that, he's the one who shows us just what it means to obey this first commandment, to hold tight to the word of the Father, just as he did in his 40 days of temptation in the desert, the very time we recollect in our season of Lent. What does he say? Go away, Satan, for it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Matthew chapter 4. The commandment follows the relationship. One commentator said, As you and I live and breathe, as we fight against Satan and sin, as we walk through the crowd of this world with its trials and temptations, the Father speaks to all his children, to you and me. Hold my hand, I won't let go. The second commandment tells us to not make for ourselves any image to bow down to, to worship, any image of anything. Okay, so don't worship angels, don't make statues or carvings of animals, bugs, birds, fish, or anything like that. So just think around your house for a moment. 
Have you got any of those things? Then you can smile and say, I've nailed that. Really? How wrong we are. What we fail to realise, both in our culture in general and as Christians in particular, is that true and false worship surrounds us. It's everywhere. Idols are everywhere. We're always worshipping something, but rarely the right thing. In our culture as a whole, what are the idols? Well, I'm sure you can come up with many. These are a few. Celebrity, sport, money, sex, success again, maybe even equality. We give ourselves to the pursuit of these things. We work ourselves to death in pursuit of power and money. Longer and longer working hours, never turning mobile phones off. Our instantaneous response to society at any time of the day or night. Well, we have to, don't we? We devote ourselves to keeping track of the most minute details of the lives of celebrities. We can't possibly miss the world of reality TV. What's happening in their lives? What will they do next? We gorge on it almost. There's so many reality TV type programmes on the television at the moment. It's amazing. But you know, in the church, we've made some pretty subtle idols too. We spend inordinate amounts of time worrying about attendance numbers. When lots of people are coming to church, we feel great. When there's a dip, well, what have we done wrong? Maybe we've become greedy and want even more, so that we're not seen as a failure, so that we have success, even fame. Those become our idols as church. Or maybe we worship the building, the kind of music we sing, the style of our services. It's all possible, isn't it, to put those things in the most important place, which actually is God's place. In my experience, and perhaps in yours too, the Holy Spirit continually challenges us to apply this command to our hearts. He brings conviction about the things that demand too much of our attention, even good things, which we can easily turn into ultimate things. That's when the Holy Spirit reminds us, or tries to at least, if we will listen, of the one who is better than any idol, even the really good idols that we enjoy. In this time of Lent, of course, we try to give up some of our idols. Maybe chocolate is one of yours, or biscuits. Maybe it's watching something regularly on the television. Last year, Andrew challenged me to stop watching EastEnders. Now, I'd started watching it in the first place because of a funeral that I was doing. This sounds ridiculous, but nevertheless was true. A funeral I was doing where the family were obsessed by this programme, and they'd asked me to kind of do some reflection on it, which is tricky in a funeral situation. And that was a good few years ago, when I was back in Utoxeter. And I'd continued to watch it, really out of habit, to be fair. But he challenged me to stop watching it during Lent. And at first, it was really difficult, because I kind of thought, I wonder what is happening in the storyline. There were some quite key storylines at that moment. I was thinking, I, I kind of want to know. But I avoided it. And actually, do you know, I haven't watched it since. And I haven't really missed it. Not really. Even now, apparently, there's something, some amazing things going on. I don't know, you may. Um, but I haven't missed it at all. It had become an idol, and it wasn't healthy. And I have put it down and focused on better things. 
So these ten words, these ten commandments, they are clearly still relevant for us as Christians today. But some questions. Can we keep them fully or perfectly? No. Do they serve to show us our sin and lead us to the cross? Absolutely. But they also show us the way to live, the way to love our neighbour and the way to love God with all our heart and soul. These commandments have some big principles around them. The first one, it seems to me, is respect. Respect for God, for his name, for his day, his people, for family life, for life itself, for marriage, for people's property and their reputation. A healthy, holy society is built on respect, surely. But is ours today? I wonder. A second principle is responsibility. All these commands call us to take up our own responsibility for our own behaviour and our own way of life. Maybe this is the thing we need to reflect on over the next few weeks. How are we holding our responsibility? Firmly with both hands, or maybe a bit lightly, just at our fingertips? There's so much more that could be said, and to try and cram both an introduction and two um, commandments into one sermon is a bit of a tall order. Time rushes by. But I'd like to ask you to take these words and to chew on them, to learn from them, not just for us today, but for the future generations who will be formed by the choices of respect and responsibility that we might make today and in the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words from Scripture. We thank you that they teach us about respect, about responsibility. They help us to see who you are and who we are and just how much you love us. Help us to reflect on all of them in these weeks of Lent, that we might together and on our own bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.